Last week we had a wonderful uh, missions update by Zay um, and sort of a mini sermon, but the week before we looked at Psalm chapter 13 and we began talking about a very common, very mundane, but very practical issue, and that issue is the issue of venting, what we do when we vent. Um, and we looked at Psalm 13 and we looked at David as an example of serious venting and uh, looked at how he handled it, what he said, what he felt. And I want to continue on that. But as I've said before, I, I do think there is a place for, for good venting, all right? I, I think there is a genuine, um, I guess, opportunity and, and way to, to be able to vent. And we all experience it sometimes. Last time I looked at this, I said this, venting is like you being a pressure cooker. And because of this pressure that's building up inside of you, what happens when the cooker's done? It, 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 the steam lets out. And that's what's like when we vent. We've got this pressure that's building up. Pressure that's created by our circumstances. Uh, pressure created by our relationships. Pressure created by situations that are very hard and difficult. And eventually, as it builds up, we, we spew out steam and we need to let it go. And, and I think there is a place for that. I think it can be um, good in a certain way. Why do we need to feel the need to vent, though? And, and there are different reasons you might have. For some of us, we had this desire that wasn't met, and it's, that desire has gone out of control, and, and, and we, we just need to vent it out. So others, maybe you've been mistreated. Maybe someone has done something wrong to you, uh, and, and it's been building up, and, and you need to just let it out. Uh, others of us, maybe you feel like justice has, has just not been served, and it makes you so upset, and it's been building and building, and you need to just vent right tell someone about it sometimes we vent because we want empathy we want empathy we we want others to to feel for us and, and and feel with us and that's why we share and that's why venting is not just words it's also emotions and feelings and attitudes sometimes we vent because we feel this need to to get people on our team tell us our desire and what we're going through and what we are is not crazy and we want to get people on our side especially against what we think is the enemy, and um, there, there might be a right place to do this. But I, I, I want us to, just to, as we get into Psalm 88, give you just a couple practical things to be careful of as, as we think about our venting. It's, it's not simply just a reaction. It's something that we need to also be aware of and be, be under control of. Venting's not just a pressure cookie cooker, but it's also, uh, think about this way, a, a Coke can, or, or for some of you, maybe it's a beer can. Right? You take that Coke can you be in, or whatever it is and you shake it up, what happens? The pressure inside the can builds up and it's intense pressure, but when you open it, it all spews out, right? All that Coke, all, all that liquid comes out. But the thing is, it gets all over you. It gets sticky. And if there's people around you, it gets all over them and it gets messy and it's not always the best thing. There's a bad way to, to vent. And there are things that we need to be careful of. First of all, Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. I tell you this, you must give an account for every word you speak. In other words, what we say with our mouths matters to him. And sometimes in our venting, we spew out ugly words. It's what we can call an emotional and verbal vomit, right, in our extreme venting. And the thing is, it affects people. It affects people. It can inadvertently even hurt people. And it's certainly hard to forget depending on who you are venting to. I remember way, way back when there was a sister that was coming to me with some issues and 
She was venting. She was just letting it all out. And, and I was listening and just listening and listening. But when she vents, uh, her voice began to rise. And, and the pitch of her voice began to get higher and higher and higher. And I was like, it's like, like a mosquito. And, and to be honest, I couldn't understand what she was saying because all I could hear was this loud squeal. And I, after that meeting, I, I, I couldn't erase the sound. Every time I saw her, I just kept thinking of a mosquito, you know, and just like, and I, to be honest, I thought maybe she's a little bit crazy, right? Uh, you vent about your spouse. You vent about your boyfriend or a girlfriend. And sometimes, depending on who you're venting to, you inadvertently give a, an impression of yourself that you really don't want to. You know when pastors get together, you know when my pastor friends get together, you know what we vent about? Church. We vent about Church. But the thing is, I wouldn't want you sitting in on this conversation because you might get the wrong impression. It might sound like we're complaining about the church. In fact, we hate our churches. That's what it sounds like. That's what it can, can come down to. And so we have to be careful because we, we don't want to give an impression to others uh, that might be really incorrect of us, right? Ephesians 4.29, don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Our language can be abusive. Our speech can be hurtful. Think about this. If I had a, uh, an, an argument with my wife and I started venting my anger against her and I decided to punch her in the face. And then I said, wait a minute, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I was just venting. That, that wouldn't fly, would it? And if physical abuse wouldn't fly, what makes you think verbal abuse would work? Instead of fists, you use words. And just because we've been wronged and just because we've been... Uh, the victim of injustice, it, it doesn't give us permission to throw verbal insults, really, right? And that's something we need to be careful about. Venting can also turn easily into gossip. You're in your little group, and you're talking to your friends, and you're venting about your coworker or your boss. You're venting about someone in your family, maybe your kids, and they're listening. And it's really serious, and it sounds really serious. And the friends get worried about you, and they share with other people, and they share with other people. Maybe it's out of genuine concern. Maybe it's just gossip. I don't know. But it can easily spread. And so we've got to be careful with our venting. That's why that if we're going to vent in any way, not only do we need to know or be careful how we do it, we need to find the right people to do it with. We need to find the right group of people to do it with. The people that really know who you are, that in your venting, they know it's, it's just shrieks of pain uh, that's coming, but it's not who you are at your core. You need to find people who are quick to listen, slow to anger, take time before they answer or respond to you, and tell you not just words of comfort or understanding, but a friend who's willing to tell you real truth. Words of comfort can be great. They can make you feel really good. But if you vent to someone who's just going to validate you, whether or not your feelings or actions are valid, that's not very helpful. In fact, that can be very destructive. And so as good as venting can be, there are also things that we need to be uh, concerned about, and I think that's something that we need to remember. As we come here to Psalm 88, I just want to give you three points, because this isn't another example of venting. So what do we do? If we really want to vent, we're not sure how to do it, we're not sure where to go, what, what do we do? And three things I see here in Psalm 88. First, there is venting here as well. There's venting in the dark. Secondly, there's the reality of darkness. And thirdly, hopefully, there's hope and help in the dark, okay? Venting in the dark, reality in the darkness, hope and help in the dark, okay?
Okay, let's look at this very carefully. Two weeks ago, we saw Psalm 13. We looked at King David. King David was venting against his God. And now we're looking here at Psalm 88. And if you look at the subheading or the, uh, the heading above this chapter, it says that it is written by the man called He-Man, the Ezraite. Now, when you compare Psalm 13 and Psalm 18, both of these psalms are called lament psalms. And for obvious reasons, they express lament. They are prayers by people who are going through stuff and they're asking God for help or for some relief. And just like David, He-Man, the author of Psalm 88, he's also venting. And though we don't know exactly what these two men are, are, actually, or have, are actually going through, they're both, if you read them together, they're both very similar in their feeling. They're both in anguish. They, they both feel like they're at their ends. They're both coming to God. They're both venting in frustration, maybe even anger, certainly in desperation. And they both feel like no one understands and no one is listening to them. Look at verse 13, from verse 13 to 14 and 15 here in our passage. This is what human says, I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast your soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. This is what he meant saying. But did you notice in verse 14 what he says? Why do you hide your face from me? Does that sound familiar? If you were here two weeks ago, you know it would. David said the same thing. In chapter 13, verse 1, he says, How long will you hide your face from me? To have the face of God meant to be blessed. To have God face you was mercy and grace. And they weren't seeing any of it. They weren't having any face time with the God that they say they worshipped. But here's the thing. As similar as these two are, in David's experience, and, and, and I think practically almost all the Psalms, the trouble comes from enemies. It comes from their circumstance. It comes from other people. But look here in Psalm 88. It's different. Look at verse 6. God, you have put me in the pit. Verse 7. God, your wrath lies heavenly on me. God, verse 8. You have caused my friends to shun me. Verse 15. God, you have made me suffer your terrors. What's this guy saying? Over and over again, he's saying, God, you did this. You did this. It's your fault. It's not an enemy here that he's talking to. It's God, and it's the God that he wants to trust and have faith in, but he is accusing him. It's your fault. And verse 15, what does he say? Afflicted and close to death from my youth, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless from my youth. You know what he's saying? He's doing what a lot of us do when we're in a difficult moment. That the difficulty in the present becomes the lens how we look at all of, our, all of our life. And he's saying, look, I'm going through something hard. And if I think about it, even from my youth, you've never been there, God. And I think if I could really push it, if I relay with this, I think he's saying, God, I don't like you right now. I don't like you. I think that's what he's getting to. You look at verses 10 through 12. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Are your wonders known in the darkness, in the land of forgetfulness? Do you hear the tone of my voice? He's being sarcastic. 
These are rhetorical questions. Of course, the expected answer is no. But do you hear what he's saying? Not just what he's saying, but how he's saying it. You see what he's doing? He's in some kind of pain, some kind of desperation, and he's venting to God. To God. Okay? Second thing, let's look at this. The reality of darkness. Look at the end of this chapter. Look at the end of his venting. Here's what I want you to know. Almost all of the psalms of lament end with a positive note. They almost always acknowledge God that somehow, no matter what they're venting, that somehow he's working in the world and in their lives. And that's what we saw two weeks ago in Psalm 13. The last words of David in that chapter was what? I have trusted in your steadfast love. I will rejoice in your salvation. He makes that decision to do this, right? But this psalm is different. Notice how it ends in verse 18. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. End of the chapter. My companions have become darkness. Darkness is the last word. What kind of prayer, what kind of psalm has darkness as its last word? And as you keep hearing this, this darkness, you realize this man, he, man he, he's not just angry, he's sad. And I think it's a desperate sadness. Look at how he prays in the very beginning of the psalm. God of my salvation, I cry out to you day and night. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. He's crying to the Lord and he's praying an unanswered prayer. It's an unanswered prayer. And it happens. The psalm begins by addressing God day and night. I'm praying to you. Listen to me. Hear me. Answer me. He's desperate. When you pray for, for example, a conversion of a loved one and it hasn't come, your heart longs for it. Someone in your family gets, gets really, really sick and, and you're praying for health and life and, and there's no answer. It's a difficult place to be. Your marriage, your parenting, your work may seem so unbearable and you've been crying out to God, but literally... It's not a better situation, and there's no reply. The psalmist has done everything. He's probably fasted. He's certainly praying, maybe even ripped his clothes as he comes to God. But he's feeling as he's not been heard, that the prayer is not being answered. He's not just frustrated or angry. He's in the dark. And I think that means this. He's depressed. Darkness is repeated three times in this chapter. Verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit, the regions of the dark. Verse 12, are your wonders known in the darkness? Verse 18, my friends are my darkness. Darkness is my friend. That's how it ends. The psalmist wants to trust in God, but he's feeling totally the opposite. There's no sense of hope, no light, just darkness. And, and it's one thing, like, if darkness was outside, right, you know, in your circumstances or in other people, but, but you still got God inside, you could maybe deal with that, right? But when it's dark, not just outside, but you're feeling dark inside, it's really, it's dark all the time. Last year, I got to speak at a youth retreat. You know, just a bunch of high school kids. And uh, after one of the services, one, one kid came up to me, probably like around 15, 14, 15, something like that. He comes up to me, and he's been sharing his, a little bit of his life. Really nice kid, sweet kid. But this is what he says. Literally, he says this. Even though it's daylight outside, it always feels like nighttime 
even though it's daylight outside, it always feels like nighttime. And I just feel down and gloomy and dark. And obviously this kid is struggling with depression. And even that age, at that age, to struggle with depression. Have you ever felt this way? What's the point here? And here's what we've got to understand. The hard truth is, sometimes you can do everything right, or you could do nothing wrong. You could even be praying, you could be living right, you could be doing right, and you could still be in the dark. That you could be a, a really good person and still have everything just go wrong and have no sense of God's presence in your life for a long, long time. And I think a lot of it has to do with our expectations about life. Expectations have so much to do with how you process what, what comes to you. And oftentimes we think, well, I'm a Christian or, or I'm a, a decent person. I'm a good person. That could never happen to me. Like Psalm 88, this guy's in serious trouble. I just can't imagine it happening to me. Like the disease I hear on TV, I mean, that's terrible, but it could never happen to me. I can't imagine that happening to me. My parents are struggling in a way that I thought would never happen. You know, in my marriage, I thought it would never happen this way. Depression. You know, several months ago, I think I went through depression. I just didn't know it was depression because I'd never experienced it. I never thought it could happen to me. But it's naive. It's naive to think that these things never happen to you. That you could never be this down or never be this sad or life could never be this, this hard. That suffering at any level on this side of heaven, what we've got to know is this. It's inevitable. Inevitable. It's the reality of the darkness. You know, I, I've said this before, but comedian Steve Harvey, he, he says this in a, in, a, in, a, in a sentence. He says, look, look at Jesus. There's a man who did nothing wrong, and look what happened to him. What makes you think you're going to get out of this world scot-free? So it's not if bad things happen or if hard things happen. It's just when. But yet we are always surprised when it happens. We are always overwhelmed when it does. And we always get down. It's, it's pretty depressing. But that's the reality of this world. And sometimes of our lives. So what are we to take away from this, right? He's venting. We see the reality of his darkness. What do we do? Do we just go home? He ends with darkness. That's the end of the chapter. Uh, do we pray and just leave now? Uh, life is pretty dark. What do we do? Well, let's look at maybe a possible hope and help in the dark. The way to look at this chapter is start by asking you the question is this. What is this chapter doing in the Bible? I mean, if you were going to construct a, a religion out of a book, a book that's supposed to be encouraging, a book that's, that's supposed to grow your faith, a book that's supposed to be more spiritual, then this chapter, it doesn't fit. It, in fact, it's kind of embarrassing. In fact, Martin Marty, an author and, and Christian author, says this in his book, A Cry of Absence, Reflections for the Winter of the Heart. He writes of Psalm 88, he says this, quote, The psalm is a scandal to anyone who isolates it from the biblical canon, a pain to anyone who must hear it apart from more lively words. Whoever devises from Scripture a philosophy in which everything turns out right has to begin by tearing out this page of the volume. And what he's saying is, 
The Bible's no fairy tale. Not everything ends happily ever after. That the darkness can be real. And so either this chapter was a mistake and Christianity was supposed to be much brighter, or this is a dose of realism and Christianity is very real. And the Bible is revealing itself in very human and very realistic perspectives. And the answer is this. The psalm isn't about giving you an answer. What do I do in this moment? Maybe it's not about giving you a solution to your problems. Maybe it's about not about what's said, but what's not said. Yes, you don't see God anywhere in this chapter. It's silence from him. But maybe there's an argument from silence. You know, one of the things that, we, that I, I see struggling with is this, and, and I tend to see it more men over, or over women, but men, and some women, in fact, in fact, I shouldn't say men or women, but I think some women, in fact, are very problem-solving oriented. You know, you're a problem solver. So when someone shares with you an issue, you're immediately saying, this is what you got to do. This is what you should, you should do. This is what you should think. This is how you should say it. You know, we, we are problem solvers. I, I, I'm like that. People don't come to me so that I could feel with them, right? People come to me for answers. But at the same time, there are people, and many people, uh, a lot of women and some guys, they need not just an answer. What they're doing, what they're sharing is they need someone to understand them. They need someone to hear them. They need someone to, to empathize with them and what they're going through. They need to just be heard. They're not always looking for an answer, but they just want to be understood. They want to be empathized with. You know, you know the difference, right, between sympathy and empathy? You know, there's a guy in a hole and he's in a deep, dark pit, and there's a person all over the top saying, oh, I feel bad for you. That's, that's sympathy. I feel bad for you. Empathy is there's a guy in the pit and you're down with him because you know what it feels like. That's empathy, right? And many of us, sometimes when we share things, even when we're venting, it doesn't always mean we're looking for answers. Sometimes it just means we want to be heard and listened to. James chapter 1 says this in verse 19, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Here's a question for you. You might be a good talker. You might have a lot of answers, but are you a good listener? When someone shares with you an issue, do you say, hey, look on the brighter side? My doctor, you know, as I was going through my, my initial ailment, uh, ailment he, she said, hey, look on the brighter side. You're not dying. I was like, okay, that's great. I'm just going to have to live with this, you know. I mean, you can live without an arm. Does that make it better? No, I don't think so. But, that's, you know, some, you know or maybe you're more Christian and, and, you, and someone's sharing something with you and you say in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, God will make everything work for your good. Just trust in him. But the truth is sometimes you'll go through all of life and you never know what that good is. So let's admit it that even though we might be crying out for answers when we're in pain and when we're in suffering and when we're in this kind of darkness, there is no answer in that moment that's going to make sense to us and it's not going to make it easier and it's not going to make it better and it just won't work. How could someone talk to God like this? It's your fault. You did this, you did this, you did this. You know, if I said that to my dad, he would have kicked my butt, right? And there's only one other chapter like this in the Bible, and that's Psalm 39. But the fact is, the fact 
that it is in the Bible. The fact that God didn't just say, hey, that, that chapter, I don't like it. Let's get it out. It's disrespectful. It's untheological. It's just not right. Let's get it out. He didn't censor this chapter. In spite of the way he talks, in spite of the darkness, in spite of the feeling that he's going through, in spite of the fact that even though in anger and frustration he's venting, it's there in the Bible. Which kind of tells me this. That God knows. It must mean that he knows how we can get sometimes. He knows that that's how we can really feel sometimes. That, that you, you have a God here who knows what we're going through. And he's not a God who's going to give you the answers. But here in 88, a God who listens to all our venting and frustration to all our emotional and even verbal vomit. He hears it. He's the God who is quick to hear, slow to anger, and slow to speak. And he's still your God. He's still God of human. He knows this is what we go through, not just cognitively, but also emotionally, mentally, spiritually, in every way. God isn't just sympathetic. He's empathetic. It's as if he's leaving this chapter here. He's saying, I get it. I get it. You can let it all out. You can vent to me. How do I know this? Well, because of his darkness, Heman felt God rejected him. He felt like darkness was permanent. He felt like he was all alone, but he was wrong. Psalm 80, verse 14, why do you hide your face from me? Verse 18, darkness is my closest friend. But you look at the gospel of Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, Jesus on the cross. At the sixth hour, what came over the land? Darkness. Jesus in the dark. And the ninth hour, what does he say from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's Jesus on the cross. Here's the Son of God questioning his Father. Why? Why? Why have you forsaken me? You know what forsaken means? His face turned away from Jesus Christ. Like David in Psalm 13, like our passage today, Jesus is asking God, why have you turned your face from me? He felt the darkness. Heman felt like it was dark and that was all there was, verse 12. He felt like he was in hell, verse 4. But you know what we confess in our, in our Apostles' Creed? Jesus descended to hell. He was consumed ultimately by darkness. Heman only felt like God was, was always angry with him, that his wrath was on him, verse 7. But it was the real wrath of God that Jesus took. Heman felt like dying in verse 5. And he felt abandoned because he wasn't getting what he was looking for. But it was Jesus Christ who really died. Completely, completely abandoned by God his Father. And when he asked his question, why have you forsaken me? Silence. Silence. Heman's experience, Heman's words are Jesus' experience. His words multiplied by infinity. Sometimes you feel like human. Sometimes you feel like Psalm 88 when you feel like everything just, uh, for lack of a better word, everything just sucks. And there's no satisfying answers. And there's just silence. silence. And when you feel like you're all alone and, and, and there's no one there who really, really understands what you're going through. 
I want you to know this. There's probably no one who understands this experience and these words better than Jesus. And that means you have a Savior who didn't just die for sin so that you could go to heaven. He empathizes with your darkness like no one can. You can vent to him. He understands. You can be honest with your struggle. You can cry over it. You can pray over it. You could scream it. You could bring it to church. You could bring it to Christ in the cross. You could vent to him. And that might be a better option. Before you start venting to other people, at risk of maybe possibly sinning, maybe we should first vent to God and then be prepared to vent to others. No one will understand like him. You know what it's like to be in the dark? Think about it. Physically speaking, if you're in the dark, you can't see anything or anyone. And the scary thing about being in the dark is not just you don't know what's out there in front of you. The scary thing about being in the dark is this. You feel all alone. You feel all alone. And there are moments where I felt this. I felt this. And no one really has answers. And there's, there's this feeling that, that no one really knows what you're going through because they're not going through it. Only you are. And you feel alone. But what has helped? What has helped me was the fact that my wife was still there with me. That my children are with me. That there are church people that are with me. They don't have the answers, but the fact they are with me just made it a little bit easier to endure and to get through it. Sometimes the best thing you can do for a person going through a period of darkness is not to give them the best answer, but to be there with him or her, to be present with them in the midst of their suffering. And sometimes that's the best thing God can do for you. As David prays, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Not to get you out of the valley all the time, but to get you through it with him. When you feel in the dark, he's there you can vent to. But if you vent to him, you've got to realize, no matter what the result, he's there to vent to. He's there with you in the dark. He knows what it's like like nobody else, and he's with you. I don't always know why certain things happen the way they do, why darkness sometimes seems so prevalent in your life or my life or in the world, but neither did the psalmist or King David. And it's a hard lesson and it's real evidence that some things are just really off in the world. Some things are broken. That this world is not our final home, but our ultimate hope and our help needs to be found in God. And not just God, but God with us, even in the dark. As we are reminded one day, and will be reminded one day, Psalm 139, that even the darkness is not dark for God, and that the night is bright as day. Darkness, yes, it's real. But one day, we hope there is a light that can turn night into day. And that's our hope in the midst of trouble. Not just to escape it all the time, but also to be able to endure it with our God in the dark. Let's pray.